Micah chapter 6. And I pray, Lord, that Your Word would now soak our hearts. Father, I, I know and I believe that You have a Word for every one of us tonight. Some may hear it right away in the first five minutes. Others may not hear it till the very last couple of seconds. Others will hear somewhere in the middle or many times throughout. But, Lord, to be in Your Word, we're excited because we know we can hear You. And I pray that You will speak. And your voice, not mine, your voice, Father, will be heard. And that you would silence all other voices. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've talked about, Micah prophesied in a culture of chaos. It's far worse than I think maybe I had realized before. You look back at history and you, you think, you know, we throw dates on these things, on the on the preaching of the of the minor prophets. Oh yeah, it was, it was around 740 to 700 BC. Oh yeah, that's that's when it happened, and and it did. But we don't stop to think about what was really happening, what was going on at the time when Micah was called by God to start speaking God's word. When we think about those things and recognize that, we start to understand the power of the words and what Micah had to say. This this prophet who uniquely was called to both Israel and Judah, both to the northern and to the southern kingdom. He witnessed the fall of the northern kingdom. He warned against the fall of the southern kingdom. And I'm reminded of Jesus' words because I think they would have applied in the days of Micah even as they applied in the days of Jesus as they apply so much more so in our day, which is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24.12 when He said, Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Put a little check mark in your minds by that verse, Matthew 24.12, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Matthew 24 being that passage where Jesus is on the Mount of Olives and He's talking about the last days. And He's describing and He's defining the last days for us. What's amazing, remarkable to me is you can read through Matthew 24 and we're not going to tonight, but you could do that and what you see is literally a listing of things that we should expect to see taking place in the end times, at the end of the end times. And when I read because of the increase of lawlessness, I am yet again struck by the days in which we live. Ferguson, Missouri which continues to boil. I don't know what's going to happen there tonight, but for the last 11 nights there have been protests, there's been violence, there's been looting, there's been vandalism, rioting going on because of the fatal shooting of an 18-year-old named Michael Brown. You all know the news story. Fatally shot by police officer Darren Wilson. And you know what? Beyond that, the facts are not in. I heard on the news just before I left home that of 78 people who were arrested last night, four are from Ferguson, Missouri. The rest are coming in. It's as though there's this call to anarchy. You know, an opportunity to protest for protest's sake alone. The grand jury, as you know, convened today. Let's pray that not only will the truth come out, but that it will be heard and received. That it will be so clear what really happened that all of this craziness can stop. The increase of lawlessness. I mean, explain to me, what does looting have to do with protesting the loss of life? How does that play into this? It's just sheer insanity. Every society has its evil. Every society in history has had its evil. But the rule of law and moral absolutes allow us as a society to suppress that evil to a degree. But when the rule of law is trumped, when it's cast aside, when it's ignored, or when morality breaks down as is happening in our country... 
culture will spiral into chaos. What we see in Ferguson is a microcosm of a larger picture that the Bible tells us will take place in the last seven years of this age. So if you can imagine that on a global scale, that is something of what the tribulation will look like, only far worse. Why are we going into this? It's it's not just to cover the news. Micah prophesied from such a place, in such a position, prophesying through civil warring and fighting back and forth and idolatry and wickedness and evil of the worst kind. Evil that was bad enough for God to intervene and send the northern country into exile. Evil that was bad enough for God to call Babylon his servant, Nebuchadnezzar his servant, to come in and in 586 take the southern country into exile. It's got to be awfully bad when God responds that way. And Micah was there. In Micah's third and final message, the Lord convenes a hearing, a grand jury if you will, a grand jury of sorts to get at the truth And we've seen Him do it with Israel before. In fact, there are several times where the Lord says, present your case. Pulls them into the courtroom, the divine courtroom. And says, give it your best shot. This one's different. Because as we open up to Micah chapter 6, and if you haven't done that, you can do that now. God puts Himself on trial. Now, the king is in the box. Now the king is the one... At question. Hear now what the Lord is saying, verse 1. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth because the Lord has a case against His people. Even with people, He will dispute. My people, note verse 3, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Answer me. You start out thinking, oh, he's got a case against his people and he's going to lay it out. Well, he'll get there. But he starts with himself. Let's talk about me. What have I done? I I hear the voice of a parent in that. What have I done? How have I failed as a parent to cause you to act this way? He says, how have I worried you? I mean, there's emotion in the voice of God. What have I done to you? He calls on the hills and mountains. The hills and mountains in Scripture are at times similes for the witnesses of history. Those that look on. It's almost like saying if these walls could speak. Oh, hills and mountains, speak out. The hills and mountains, the valleys that have witnessed a 700 year long relationship between God and His people Israel. And in that relationship, the Lord now makes a case for grace. God makes a case for God's own grace. Verse 4, Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery and I sent you, or before you, I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. You know that Micah is the only prophet, in fact, he's the only Bible writer outside of one slight little mention in 1 Chronicles and it's just in the middle of a genealogy. Micah is the only one to mention Miriam. You get outside of Torah, Micah's the only place you'll find her name again. And Micah's the only one to take Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, all three, and put them together as three leaders of Israel. Well, you always hear about Moses. You can read about Moses and Aaron, and even in the first five books in the Torah, you see Moses and Aaron, you hear about Miriam, but you don't hear her as a leader. Micah opens her eyes and says, the Lord says, I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, all three of them. There was your leadership team in those early days. Moses stood as the representative of God to man. Aaron stood as the representative of man to God, the high priest. Miriam comes along and she was the prophetess with a skin condition. Numbers 12, she complains against Moses. She's envious of his situation. And the Lord descends in that cloud of His Shekinah glory. And when the cloud lifts, she is covered with leprosy. The Bible says she is white as snow because she was green with envy. That's how that works. 
But in Micah's singular mention, and I just love this, Miriam is not remembered for her leprosy, she's recalled for her leadership. See, that's grace. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and the leper. (laughs) You know, that loudmouth complainer Miriam. No! I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, the three together. All three, we know, had their weak points, right? Moses had his sin moment. (laughs) And Aaron, his sin moments. And Miriam, all three were sinners, all three were weak. But the God of grace used them anyway. I sent them before you. I did that, God says. And in verse 5, he says, My people remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him from Shittim to Gilgal, so that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. Okay, remember Balaam and Balak, God says. I want you to think about this, but I want you to do so so you can remember what happened that proves my righteousness, that shows forth my grace. He's building a case for grace. Numbers 22 through 24. You don't have to go there, but here's the story in summation. Balak, king of Moab, calls on Balaam, that crafty old seer, to come and curse Israel. I'll pay you some good money if you will come and put a curse on this people. Well, you know what happened? Every single time Balaam tried to curse, he opened his mouth and blessing came out. He could not curse. It's one of the funniest stories in the Bible. In fact, Balaam's whole life. You know, talking donkeys, can't curse anybody. I can see Balaam driving down the road, somebody cuts him off and he goes, Bless you! Go to heaven! You know, he just can't. He can't do anything but bless. It's amazing. (laughs) And Deuteronomy 23 verse 5 says, The Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you. Listen, because the Lord your God loves you. Because He loves you. That's why nothing but blessing came out of this guy's mouth. And by the way, He still does this. He still turns curses into blessings. For those who love God, who are called according to His purpose, He turns cursing into blessing. Psalm 109.26 David cries out, Help me, O Lord my God, save me according to Your loving kindness, and let them know that this is Your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. I think that's a great thing, by the way, to add into our prayers. Lord, save me, and when You do, let people know it was You who did the saving. I didn't just figure a way out of this. You did it. But then he says, let them curse, but you bless. And when they arise, they shall be ashamed, but your servant shall be glad. He turns curses into blessings. He makes persecution into praises. As Jesus said in Matthew 5.10, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessing! Someone comes after you, you're blessed. The curses don't land. Only the blessings. With one exception. And that is when we invite the curse in ourselves. When we open the door and say, come on. Well, how do we do that? Balaam recognized he could not curse Israel. He tries it four different times, but the crafty clairvoyant cannot do it. And so he offers King Balak another option. Invite Israel to curse itself. I can't do it, but they can do it to themselves. And here's how. And Jesus illuminates it for us. Revelation 2.14, He's speaking in the letter to the church at Pergamum. And He says, I have a few things against you because you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit adultery. And so what happened is Balaam said, Hey, Balak, look, just parade some of your better-looking chicks in front of the Israelites. They'll fall like flies one after another. They'll come after you and invite them to your, you know, your, your pagan temple worship services, which all had to do with prostitution. They'd love that. And they will curse themselves, and they did. And 24,000, I believe it was, I'll have to check my number on that. I think it was 24,000 Israelites died in a plague 
Because they curse themselves. God's blocking the curse over here. I'm not going to let a curse come at you. But the Israelites say, oh, but we kind of would like one. And they open the door and they invite it on themselves. God's desire is always to bless His people. Always. The curses come by invitation only. Curses enter our lives when we open the door for them, when we invite them ourselves. Somewhere, somehow, I opened a door and invited it in. But it reminds me that every complaint that's made against God is groundless. Complaints like, how could you let this happen to me? Why is this going on in my life? What could you be thinking, God? He's thinking, I want to bless you. And if there's cursing instead of blessing, maybe we ought to put on the brake, step back and go, what am I doing? Did I open the door somewhere? Did I invite this on myself? Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, Moses said, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. Choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, by holding fast to Him, for this is your life and the length of your days. You don't have to be cursed. Because the Lord wants to bless. That is His heart's desire. You know, that's a message I think we can take to a a very lost and hurting and broken world. You know, rather than, are you right with Jesus? How about, you know how much the Lord wants to bless you? He's got storehouses of blessing just waiting to pour out in your life. He wants to bless. I'm not talking prosperity gospel. I'm talking the joy of the Lord and the peace we talked about on Sunday that is Jesus. And comfort and strength and wisdom and discernment and all these good things. That's what He wants to offer. Now the voice of the plaintiff responds. God pointing out His grace, Moses, Aaron, Miriam, pointing out His grace and His desire to bless. And the plaintiff, in verse 6, With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings, with yearly calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? What are they saying? What's good enough for you, God? I mean, how much do I have to do? Which is often on the minds of unbelievers. How many times a week do I have to go to church if I become a Christian? Because I've got a busy schedule. What is required of me? What do I have to do here? And there is a suffocating darkness that comes in self-pity and self-loathing. It says, I, I'm not good enough. That's the other side of it. It's, it's, it's not the, the pushing God back because he, He's just too demanding. It's the, it's the self-pity. It's, I'm just, I could not possibly be good enough for Him. Therefore, I, there's not enough oil. There are not enough yearling calves. There's not enough I can offer. I can't even offer my firstborn and, and, and make, make it good enough. God asked too much. The church is too demanding. I'd be a hypocrite if I even tried. What do you require? And God answers in verse 8. I love this. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Now let's camp out there for a minute. Three things that God says, here's what I require. The simplicity of this is profound. Do justice. That's the first thing. Just do justice. Jesus put it this way, Luke 6.31, treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you want people to break into your small convenience store, smash through the glass and loot things, do it. If that's that's how you want others to treat you. Treat others the way you want them to treat you. Do justice. And so simple, it is not to demand uh, fairness, it's not to protest for my rights. It's just do justice. Do you know that doing justice denies the mentality of a victim? If you're too busy out there doing what's right for other people, treating others the way you would like to be treated, being just, being fair, you're not a victim. Because now you're doing something 
as opposed to sitting back and wondering why it's always just done to you. Denies the victim mentality in favor of doing what I can to promote truth and integrity and goodness in this world. Do justice. Anybody can do justice. You can do it at home in your family. Treat each other right. You can do it in the workplace. Treat your co-workers right. You can do it in the marketplace. Just treat people fairly. And then, love kindness. Love kindness. Achava chesed in the Hebrew. Chesed, I hope that's a word that's real familiar to you, not just because you get stuff on your shirt when you say it. Chesed is loving kindness. It's kindness. It's grace. It is the Hebrew word for grace. Love, grace. Ahava. Some of you have seen the Ahava products from the Dead Sea, the salt products. It just means love. Desire. It actually is a word that kind of implies a desirous love. Not, not sensual or lusty as much as just, oh, I so desire. You know, my wife was gone all day today and I just desired to see her. I just wanted to be where she was. You know, that's, that's the kind of love. Love grace that way. Do you love grace that way? Do you love grace? Do you bask in grace? And if so, how are you? How am I at giving grace? If I desire it so much, do I desire it as much for others as I do for myself? Love kindness implies both the receiving end and the offering of it. Luke, uh, Jesus said in Luke 6.36, Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, you won't be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. And when he's talking about giving, he's not talking finances there. He's, he's talking about love. He's talking about grace. He's talking about fairness and justice. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. The more grace you give, the more it's going to be poured into your lap. The more justice you give the more justice returns. Now, you may say, well, I don't know if that's going to work in this world. It will work in this world as you follow the Lord. You may be treated unjustly, but the Lord is going to pour out justice into your life. The Lord is going to pour out His grace, His love into you. Love kindness. Do justice. And thirdly, and I love this, walk humbly with your God. Adam in the garden. And again we hear the Lord God saying, come on back to Eden. In the cool of the day, under the branches of the trees, let's let's just walk together. Walk humbly with your God. Now, that does require a state of humbleness, which can be a bit problematic for some of us. 1 Peter 5, verse 5 says, All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time. And that sounds great. How do I do it? I want to humble myself. But Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in so many ways. Is that how the song goes? <laughs> I want to be humble. Listen to what Spurgeon says. I would not advise any of you to try to be humble. But to be humble. I read that, and the first part I was like, oh, this is going to be a great Spurgeonism. And then he said, but to be humble. And I'm like, what does that mean? Don't try to be humble, just be humble. Great. Thanks, Chuck. I don't get it. Charles Spurgeon, Chuck. We're on a first name. See how hard it is to be humble? He says, as to acting humbly, when a man forces himself to do it, that is poor stuff. When a man talks a great deal about his humility, when he is very humble to everybody, he is generally a canting hypocrite. Humility must be in the heart. And then it comes spontaneously as the outflow of life in every act that a man performs. Now that's sounding a little more like Spurgeon to me, but I still don't get it. Just be humble in your heart. Great. How? How do I do that? How do I develop humility of heart? I would love to walk humbly with my God. How do I do the humble part of it? And Jesus tells us. 
Keep your finger there and turn over to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and after He sat down, which is what rabbis did, His disciples came to Him. And He opened His mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed. See, God wants to bless. There it is. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Don't look at that as a bullet list. Look at it as a process of the heart of a citizen of the kingdom. Because what Jesus is describing here is a heart condition that begins with being poor in spirit. And listen, that's how humility is accomplished. This is how it's done. I become more humble the more I recognize who I really am. Not not the window dressing. Not the stuff that we put out front. Not the outward appearance. Not all the things that we try to do to prove our worth to others or even ourselves. But when I stop, and as we did earlier in the silence, recognize who He is and who I am, that is a very humbling thing indeed. How do you walk humbly with your God? Well, (laughs) you just get into God's presence and you start to realize how you're not really worthy to be there. If we can see ourselves for who we are, the humble of heart, these are those who know their own depravity. Who recognize without Jesus we would not have a leg to stand on. To know that it is only by His grace that we are saved and this is not of ourselves so that no man can boast. And that kind of humility. Do justice. Love, grace, kindness. And walk humbly. God says, that's all I want. That's all I'm looking for. You know what happens when you walk humbly with your God? You just adore Him more. You just... It's all about Him. Which He knows is the best thing for me. See, it's not all about Him because He wants to make it all about Him. It's all about Him because He knows for me as His creation that it's healthier for me, it's better for me. And then Spurgeon goes on and says, to be humble will make you safe. I'll tell you what, walking with God in the garden, who can touch me? You got a problem with me? Talk to Dad. He says to be humble will make you happy. Why? Because I'm not trying to fake everybody out. I'm not expending all kinds of energy to come off as righteous or something that I'm not. I'm just, I'm an idiot loved by Jesus. Hallelujah. He says to be humble will make music in your heart when you go to bed. To be humble here will make you wake up in the likeness of your Master by and by. That's good stuff. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with me, and I wish the world could hear God saying, as He has said, this is what I want. It's all I desire of you. These three things. Verse 9, the voice of the Lord will call to the city, it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear, O tribe, who has appointed its time. Now, verse 9, i got to give you a different translation of hear, O tribe, who has appointed its time. That's kind of an NASB translation. It's a little more heady. I like the King James translation. I think it actually fits the language better here, which is, hear ye rod, who hath appointed it. Well, that's a little different. Hear ye instrument of a beaten. <laughs> Your appointed time has come. In other words, what God is saying in verse 9 now, after expressing His grace, after expressing all He desires of His people, now we head into the punishment phase of the trial, and the Lord says, pay attention to the punishment. 
Watch what happens next. Verse 10. Is there yet a man in the wicked house, along with treasures of wickedness and a short measure that is cursed? A short measure dealing with false scales and false sales. Can I justify wicked scales and a bag of deceptive weights? For the rich men of the city are full of violence. Her residents speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Three things in that verse. Violence, lies, and deceit. When all God wants is justice, kindness, and humility. Violence, lies, deceit. Verse 13. So also I will make you sick, striking you down, desolating you because of your sins. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied. And your vileness will be in your midst. Honor Marie tonight. Wasn't feeling really good. Feeling a little tired, a little sore. And Cheryl said, why don't you go take a bath? And Honor Marie goes, I just can't stand the thought of sitting there in my own filth. (laughs) Good reason not to take a bath. You know, your shower just goes right down the drain. You take a bath, you're sitting in it. All day, everything that you went through is right there with you. What a great picture. God says your vileness will be in your midst. You want sin, I'll let you soak in it. It'll be your bubble bath. (laughs) He says, You will try to remove for safekeeping, but you will not preserve anything. What you do preserve, I will give to the sword. He's talking about storage. You're going to try and hide your good stuff when attacks come. No, I'm going to send the guys with their swords into the storage units and they're going to clear those out too. You will sow, but you will not reap. You will tread the olive, but will not anoint yourself with oil. And the grapes, but you will not drink wine. The statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab are observed in their iPhones. You in their I'm sorry in their devices. You walk. Therefore, I will give you up for destruction and your inhabitants for derision, and you will bear the reproach of my people. Gang, where sin is full, satisfaction is empty. Where there is theft, where there's violence, lies, deceit, there will be desolation. That's always the outcome. That's the fallout. Your food will not satisfy. Your storage units will be gutted by force. Your planting will be fruitless. And your labor is going to be lost to the enemy. All the stuff that mankind tries so hard to achieve in sin is useless. It's a complete waste. And then he calls out the devices of Omri and Ahab. Their counsel. A century before Micah, Omri was Ahab's father. Omri and Ahab were back-to-back rulers in Israel, and they were the most wicked in Israel. Under them, Baal worship flourished, child sacrifice, idolatry exploded, and the Lord's true prophets were murdered, and that characterized the rule of Omri, or, yeah, Omri and Ahab of these two kings. Now, as I said before, there there is evil in every society. But as long as there is the rule of law, as long as there's a standard of moral absolutes, as long as there's some standard by which we do what we do, you know, be it our constitution based on biblical principles, or even other societies that have taken moral absolutes and based society on them, evil is inhibited. That's the idea of a society and of human government. That's the idea behind it is that it inhibits the evil and allows society to function. But again, what did Jesus say? Because lawlessness is increased, the love of most will grow cold. Omri and Ahab, the people in the times of Micah, lawlessness going crazy. Israel and Judah had gone upside down. Rather than being based on moral absolutes, the moral absolutes were cashed in in favor of idolatry and everything went haywire. The culture in chaos, and so will be the world as it comes to the end. And as we come to the end of Micah's final message, he speaks to that effect. Listen to this. Chapter 7, verse 1. Woe is me, for I am like... The fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers, there is not a cluster of grapes to eat or a first ripe fig, which I crave. Now Micah's talking and he's looking around at his culture. And he's saying, I don't see any fruit. I I, I crave it, 
This is a man who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. I want it. I desire it. But there is none to be found. Verse 2. The godly person has perished from the land. There's no upright person among men. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. The prince asks also the judge for a bribe. And a great man speaks the desire of his soul. So they weave it all together. (laughs) The best of them is like a briar. The most upright like a thorn hedge. The day when you post your watchman, your punishment will come. Then their confusion will occur. Do not trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. It's so bad, Micah says, Husbands, don't talk at night to your wives. They may turn you in. Yeah, we, we, I, I know. I'm kind of laughing too, but I'm thinking maybe I shouldn't share so much with Cheryl in the late night. <laughs> maybe that's going to come back to bite me. Verse 6. For son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. And I read through that and I went, I can relate to Micah. Not about the talking to my wife thing. I can relate to Micah. Have you been in the place where you've looked around and you said, it's all evil. It's all bad. There is no good. All I have to do is turn off the news and sit there for five minutes going, this is as bad as it gets. And I start to get depressed and bummed about it. Corruption in Micah's day was everywhere. And the prophets saw it. One of the unfortunate aspects of being a prophet of the Lord is you see things. You know? Of being in the Word, of asking God to give you discernment, He will give you discernment. But guess what? That means you're going to discern stuff. That means you will see the evil going on. I want to make sure you are all aware of this. I posted it on Facebook. The ALS campaign. I I didn't talk about that with you all, did I? Okay, the ALS campaign, which is Lou Gehrig's disease, they're trying to raise money for research into uh, you know, solving Lou Gehrig's disease. The ALS campaign is, is uh, the ice bucket campaign. Take it, dump ice bucket, you know, challenge someone to take the ice bucket challenge, and they're raising all kinds of money, and it is wildly successful right now. Do you know where most of the money goes that is being raised for this? That a lot of Christians and churches are getting behind and saying, yeah, ice bucket campaign, woohoo! It's going to embryonic stem cell research. Well, that's abortion. That's where it's coming from. I wish I didn't know that. Because I thought this was a really cool thing until I heard that. I'm like, discernment! But when you have a discerning heart, when you are watching for righteousness, when you are aware of the things God wants you to be aware of, sometimes, like Micah, you just look around and go, (laughs) not good. It is not good. And I don't mean to depress you all. But understand that in this discouraging condition, there is something that happens positively to a person who is filled with the Holy Spirit. Listen to this, verse 7. But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Verse 8. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. A hint of resurrection, I think. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him. Okay, I get it. I've looked at myself and I know I'm a sinner. Therefore, I accept His punishment. That's what Mike is saying. Until He pleads my case and executes justice for me, He will bring me out to the light and I will see His righteousness. What do you do when you're discouraged by dark days? When you, like Micah, look around and you're discerning the evil and the wickedness and the bad stuff and you're going, ah, it's too much, I don't want it. Here's what you do. You watch for Jesus. Number one. As Micah says in verse 7, He is the God of my salvation. You look for the bringer of your salvation. As Jesus said in Luke 21, 28, when these things begin to take place, and my friends, they are taking place, straighten up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And I think about what David said. Psalm 51, verse 12, Restore unto me, what? The joy joy of my salvation. The joy... 
I hope when you think about the fact that you're saved, a smile creeps onto your face. Even in odd places, you're at the dentist. And you remember, I'm saved. And you start to smile. And he's like, eh, you're just smiling. <laughs> Restore to me the joy of my salvation. When these days get dark, Lord, be my light. That's the second thing. Not only watch for Jesus, the God of our salvation, walk in Christ Because even in the dark, the Lord is light for me. Verse 8, he says, the Lord is my light. He is a light for me. John chapter 1, verse 4, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. John 1, verse 9 says, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. So I've got the joy of my salvation. I've got the light of the Lord, though it may be dark all around. His light turns on and the darkness flees. Hallelujah. I can walk in that. And John says, as we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all transgression. I mean, walk in the light. And thirdly, What do you do when discouraged in dark days? You wait. You wait until He pleads your case and executes justice. Watch for Jesus, the God of your salvation. Walk in Christ, for in the dark He is a light for me. And wait until He pleads your case. What is He talking about there? An advocate. God is my salvation. God is my light. He is my advocate as well. If anyone sins, 1 John 2.1, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And if I am walking this path, though the days may be dark, I am following behind my advocate, and Micah says, then, I love this, he says, he will bring me out into the light, and then I will see his righteousness. My eyes are on Jesus, and for all the darkness and the ugliness of the world, I see his righteousness. And again I say, I can walk in that. But I want you to notice something here. Micah is a prophet. He's not just preaching words of encouragement to his own day. He is prophesying of days to come. He's talking about things that are yet future. And as bad as things were in Israel, I think Micah was looking even further ahead to a time that would be even worse. What do you mean? I think Micah chapter 7 is a prophecy of encouragement for the remnant in the tribulation. Why do you think that? Look back at verse 4. He says, The day when you post your watchmen, your punishment will come. The day when you post your watchmen. Watchmen were prophets. Watchmen were the people that God set apart for a task to keep a watch on things, to keep an eye on things, and to bring news, warning, if you will, to Israel. But on this day that the watchmen are posted, your punishment will come. Now that did happen when Babylon flooded in. This is not the only thing I'm going to show you, but it's part of the hint that perhaps Micah is looking forward to the tribulation, and perhaps the watchmen... I don't know, I'm thinking there may be 144,000 of them. Revelation 7 and 14. But there's more. Look at verse 6. Son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. The man's enemies are the men of his own household. And I shared this back when we first opened up to Micah. Jesus took this word and spoke it clearly as an encouragement to the remnant of Israel in the tribulation. He places it there. Turn over to Matthew chapter 10. I'll show you. Matthew chapter 10. Jesus is about to send out the twelve on what, when we study Matthew, we call it the first commission. It's very clearly a commission to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, Jesus said. Why? Because the gospel is for the Jew first and then the Greek. So he sends the twelve out. And I want you to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then he begins to give them training and give them teaching. But the training and teaching goes far beyond their little task at hand. He starts describing things that did not happen then, but will happen in the tribulation. Matthew chapter 10, verse 21. Pick it up there. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. And a child will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And we're not just talking about an argument or rebellion. We're talking about murder. 
You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured, note this, to the end who will be saved. Not to the end of their mission. Not to the end of this period of time that Jesus is going to send out the twelve for. No, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Who's he talking to? The twelve have long since passed away and they're waiting for the resurrection. He's talking about the end, gang. He says, but whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until what? Until the Son of Man comes. Now Peter, James, John, and the boys probably thought, oh, okay, okay, so Jesus is going to show up and call us together, and that's what he's talking about. (laughs) Until the Son of Man comes, he's talking about the second coming of Jesus. You will not finish, remnant of Israel, taking the message of the Gospel to the whole house of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Skip on down. Look at verse 34. He's just indicated in verse 21 a time of brutality and betrayal and hatred. Verse 22, He connects the message to the end. Verse 23, Jesus says, You will not finish this commission until the Son of Man comes, which again is a direct uh, reference to the second coming of Christ. And then in verse 34, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Which is not the intent of God, but it is the result of Jesus' coming. For I came, he starts quoting Micah, to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And this final section, Jesus connects the prophecy of Micah to the end. Jesus doesn't say, you know what Micah said, remember back when that happened? Back in around 700 or so? It's not what Jesus says. He says this is describing what will happen. Describing the tribulation period. Pointing the prophetic word forward. Go back to Micah chapter 7 now. Because the rest of this chapter is a a final section that portrays the days of Antichrist. Portrays the time of tribulation. And I don't think I'm reading into more than what is here. If you look at verse 9, he says... Micah says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until He pleads my case and executes justice for me. And those are the words of the remnant gang. The indignation. The indignation is the tribulation. That Hebrew word indignation is a clear biblical reference many times over to the coming tribulation, the time of Jacob's distress. And if you want a little proof of that, listen to a few of the other so-called minor prophets. Nahum chapter 1 verse 6. Get used to me saying that because we're about to open up to Nahum on Sunday. And we're going to pronounce it Nahum the whole time, just for fun. <laughs> Nahum chapter 1 verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by him. Habakkuk comes along. Chapter 3, verse 12, and says, In indignation you march through the earth. Not the land, the earth. And you trampled in anger, you trampled the nations. How about Zephaniah? Chapter 3, verse 8. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, and to pour out on them my indignation. My burning anger for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. My friends, Micah 7, these are the days of the Antichrist. And the voice that cries out at that time, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him, is the voice of repentant Israel. The voice of a remnant who realize their position before God and cry out to Him and are willing to wait until He pleads my case and executes justice for me and He will bring me into the light and my eyes will see His righteousness. Daniel, chapter 11, verse 36, says the king, speaking of Antichrist, will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods and he will prosper until the indignation is finished for that which is decreed will be done. Going on in verse 10. Then my enemy, note this, my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look on her 
at that time, she will be trampled down like mire in the streets. There is one enemy in Israel, most often referred to in the feminine, and it's Babylon. Well, then Rick, obviously Micah is just talking about Babylon conquering and waylaying Judah and uh, note, note this they're going to be trampled down like mire in the streets well it's just the punishment that God would pour out of Babylon historically speaking the Bible doesn't deal doesn't treat Babylon only historically it is one of the most prophetic second to Jerusalem probably the most prophetic city of the scriptures as Jerusalem is to the Lord so Babylon, Babylon is to Satan Babylon, the book of Revelation, describes as the center of Antichrist rule and government. And she will be covered. Shame will cover her. She will be trampled down like mire in the streets. In Isaiah chapter 47, Micah's prophetic compadre, Isaiah, refers to her again as Babylon and refers to the judgment to fall on Babylon. And the Apostle John parallels this in an amazing way in Revelation 17 and 18, speaking of a woman. Revelation 17, verse 3, I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, A Mystery Babylon the Great, or literally, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And so verse 10, we have a judgment on Babylon, and I think it points down the road to Babylon of the Tribulation. But as Babylon falls, as the nations fall, Israel rises. Verse 11, it will be a day... For building your walls. On that day your boundary will be extended. It will be a day when they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, from Egypt even to the Euphrates, even from sea to sea and mountain to mountain, and the earth will become desolate because of her inhabitants. Note that it's the earth, not just the land, the entire earth. That's a tribulation prophecy on account of the fruit of their deeds. And note this, already Micah's mention of the coming of Assyria and Egypt there in verse 12, coming into the land absolutely lines up with Isaiah's prophecy of the kingdom. Isaiah chapter 19, verse 23. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptian will worship with the Assyrians. And in that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel my inheritance." These two great nation states, enemies of Israel, will be blessed by the Lord in the millennial kingdom. That is shocking. That is grace. That is the grace of God. And that is what Micah now refers to that day when Assyria and and Egypt, they're going to come to you in a positive way. What's he mean by a day for building your walls? Verse 11. Wouldn't you think a day for building walls would be when you're, you know, under threat? Let's get those walls up as high as possible. It can't be. That can't work. It can't be walls like that because Zechariah chapter 2 verse 4 says in those days Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. For I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her and I will be the glory in her midst. So Zechariah says in the millennial kingdom no walls. So... How can it be a day for building walls in Micah chapter 7 verse 11 unless we're just completely missing it? Well, (laughs) the walls are not walls at all. The word for wall there is gader in the Hebrew and it means low fence or hedge. Hedges. It will be a day for building your hedges. And these are not hedges of protection. Like Tim Hawkins talked about, you know. Those of you who are aware of it, he talked about how we use that phrase in prayer all the time. We pray a hedge of protection around someone. And Tim Hawkins said, I don't want a hedge. I want a, I want a cement wall, you know, with, with, with 
Build that, that puppy as high as you can. Nice big. How about some razor wire on top of that bad boy? That's what I want. Lord, put a cement wall of protection around a hedge. And then he goes, I love this. He says, what's the devil going to say to that? What is this greenery? I can't get through this. <laughs> no need for such walls in Jerusalem or in Israel. We're talking about hedges. Gang, what are hedges? They're boundaries for vineyards. And in fact, the word gader specifically relates to hedges that are planted as boundary lines around vineyards. It's going to be a day for the vineyard. The only reason you're going to need to plant a hedge is just so your neighbor knows, well, this is your allotted land and this is your inheritance and this is his and it's a little hedge. We can hop over the hedge and talk to our friends and and the, the vineyards are there. A beautiful day of peace where all we need to protect a vineyard is just a hedge. Well, Micah ends his entire prophecy, this very actually short prophecy, with a prayer. Shepherd your people with your scepter. The scepter, gang, referring all the way back. Genesis 49.10 The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. The scepter is Christ. The scepter speaks of the rule of Messiah. Shepherd your people with your scepter, the flock of your possession. Note this, the word possession is literally inheritance. In the book of Deuteronomy, God calls Israel my inheritance. This is what I get out of the deal. Which dwells by itself in the woodland, in the midst of a fruitful field, or some of your Bibles say, in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out from the land of Egypt, I will show you miracles. See, the, the Lord responds to Micah's prayer. I love this. Note that. Don't, don't skip over this too quickly. He's praying and God talks to him. Did you see that? He's saying, let them feed in Bashan, Gilead, shepherd your people. Micah's in prayer and all of a sudden in verse 15, the Lord says, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show you miracles. You want to hear the Lord talk to him. Sensitivity to the voice of God is best cultivated in prayer. Nations will see and be ashamed of all their might. They will put their hand on their mouth. Their ears will be deaf. They will lick the dust like a serpent. Like the old snake in the garden. Like reptiles of the earth, they will come trembling out of their fortresses to the Lord our God they will come in dread and they will be afraid before you there are two kinds of fear of the Lord there's the fear of the Lord like a child coming to to Abba coming to Father the fear that we're called to have a healthy good holy fear and then there's the abject fear of the Lord recognizing your toast and that's this fear they will be afraid before you Verse 18, Who is a God like you? Micah basically speaks his own name. Who is like Yahweh? Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of His inheritance? He does not retain His anger forever, but He delights in unchanging love. Same word as before, He delights in chesed, grace. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depth of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and chesed, unchanging love, grace to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. And I'll tell you exactly how he's going to do it. Truth to Jacob, grace to Abraham. John 1.17 tells us the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Amen. Case closed. And that concludes the prophecies of Micah of Moresheth. A man, as we said before, we know very little about, only that he was called in those days to speak the word of God. And he has in a powerful way. Amen? Amen. Father, thank You for this prophecy. Thank You for these teachings. Thank You for this Word through Your servant Micah. I look forward, Father, to meeting Micah someday. Although I have a sense in the day that I would meet Micah, we'll be so enamored with Jesus, we won't even notice he's there. 
but we want to be enamored with You, Lord. Lord, would You teach us how better to just do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. And Lord, take these words that we have heard tonight, and as only You can do, seal them by the power of Your Spirit into our hearts and into our lives and press them upon our spirits, our souls, our bodies, so we might carry this glorious truth with us. And Lord, may we be a blessing and not a curse in this world. In Jesus' name, Amen.